Welcome back to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. If you are just joining, we're exploring the tensions and dynamics taking place in American Catholicism and the reactions to the election of President Joe Biden. Earlier, we heard from Massimo Fagioli. He's the author of a new book exploring this very question. It's called Joe Biden and Catholicism in the United States. Fagioli describes the sea change among American Catholic voters, their clergy, and the Vatican, and how those dynamics will lead to what he believes will become a quote-unquote soft schism. This week, those differences spilled into public view as the United States inaugurated its second Catholic president. The U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops sent a greeting to the new president that included both criticism of his policy record and stated that the preeminent policy priority for American Catholics is abortion. And shortly after it was released, it was publicly criticized by Chicago's Cardinal Blaise Kupich. Archbishop Kupich took to Twitter. His message included the following statement, quote, aside from the fact that there is seemingly no precedent for doing so, The statement critical of President Biden came as a surprise to many bishops, who received it just hours before it was released. Now, in his book, Fajoli details the contentious relationship that he says Pope Francis has endured for seven-plus years as efforts to delegitimize his positions on a host of issues. Pope Francis has been really on the receiving end in these last seven, eight years, almost eight years, of a campaign of delegitimization from Catholics coming especially from the United States. Whatever the Pope says on theological issues, on social issues, especially life issues, now with this change of a Pope, no longer European, but Latin American, and the Jesuit, which is one more problem. So they have really changed our allegiance because their Pope has become, for some of them, Donald Trump much more than Francis. That allegiance to the Trump administration was one explanation offered for the relatively short statement published on January 6th and signed by Archbishop Gomez. The U.S. Catholic Conference of Bishops issued a two-paragraph, 174-worded statement denouncing and condemning all violence. It made no distinctions, nor did it speak to the insurrectionists or the individuals or organizations who encouraged the protesters to stop the transfer of power to a new president. In many ways, the brief statement parroted the messages condemning violence issued by Republican leaders and allies of President Trump. So when I saw the 876 words penned by an Arlington, Virginia priest who is a newcomer to the national capital region, I was struck by its contrasting tone, message, and the author. He is not a liberal progressive priest. Here is Father Frederick Edlifson reading an excerpt of a statement titled, A Brave New Thoughtfulness for American Democracy. Pope Francis noted that even in the most mature reality, there was always something that does not work. People who take a path against the community, against democracy, and against the common good. Though nothing in this world is born in innocence, something mature has grown from the higher ideals upon which this country was founded. Notwithstanding its faults, 
Bishop Burbage said, for us to move on from this event and chalk it up to yet another angry, violent demonstration following a year of violence and chaos would be a tragic mistake. Though all riots are bad, not all riots are the same. Attacking an arm is not like attacking a heart. Unlike many of the riots of 2020, the January 6th attack was not a response to a social injustice. Attacking lawmakers who were in the process of assuring a peaceful transition of power is a grave crime against all civilized people. It was not only an attack on the present government, but a threat to the prospect of democracy for all future generations. Men and women who hold public office must, more than ever, behave like ministers of state. They must weigh the impact of their words. Everything they say or do has global consequences, but the onus is not just on leaders. We, ordinary citizens, must be solicitous not only about what we say or post on social media, but also about what we read and watch. We must be aware of what and who we believe. We must question sources and be cautious about the prospect of false and misleading assertions. It's a matter of social charity and responsibility. The German Jewish political thinker, Hannah Arendt, noted that there was a pervasive thoughtlessness in European society in the first half of the 20th century. Today, there is a thoughtlessness that arises from clinging to a narrow handful of disjointed yet strongly held convictions. Our hope lies in a new thoughtfulness. This thoughtfulness is a chosen, intentional, and empathetic social awareness, open to the needs of people outside one's own social group, even those who do not share one's opinions. Thoughtfulness starts with an attentive and non-judgmental listening to what others are saying with a view to hearing what they experience. Democracy cannot survive in a society only concerned with defending an eclectic handful of personal rights and pet causes. Democracy thrives in bold visions. For Catholic social teaching, democracy is about promoting integral human fulfillment and the common good. Catholics must boldly engage and be open to a broad array of social questions that affect millions of people. We need a brave new thoughtfulness. We just heard Father Edlifson reading an excerpt of the statement he wrote entitled, A Brave New Thoughtfulness for American Democracy. I received his statement from John Dickens of Little Rock, Arkansas via Facebook. Father Edelifson is not liberal. He often resists engaging in political activities. And in fact, he is really reticent to talk about partisan politics. So I was eager to hear what inspired this reflection and this public statement speaking directly to our politics and how we engage with each other. And how he sees this moment as President Biden prepares to lead the nation. It will be a view from a religious leader, not in the hierarchy of the Catholic Conference, but on the ground, serving a parish not far from the nation's capital. We spoke via Zoom the week before the inauguration, and our conversation begins with my question about the title and his reason for sharing his thoughts. I think a lot of folks in the world out there are are looking for ready explanations and so forth. And, and sometimes they want to minimize it or explain it away because it's hard to digest. Well, I felt as a pastor uh, that I needed to say something. What inspired you to sit down and write those words? A lot of these thoughts have been in the back of my head for a while. I did have a, always a, an interest in Catholic social teaching. When I was reading Catholic social teaching, not only in the seminary, but even doing you know, reading after I was ordained, 
So there's a lot of concrete application of that that I had to ponder. And truth be told, none of that has ever really left my mind. I still think about these things because I see in, as a Catholic priest, and I do believe in the incarnation of Christ. And I think that as St. Thomas Aquinas says that the son of God became man and, and man was the formal cause of that. In other words, he became human for our sake to redeem us from a brokenness. And I think in many ways, a government has the same mission. It is the purpose of the government is the human person. It's there to uh, help them thrive and grow to meet their potential, but also so that person can also make a contribution to that society. And a government is not just about what it can do for me or what my personal rights it can protect. I'm not saying that's not in the mix because it is, but the aim of the government is the person. And it must recognize the dignity of that person. And if that's what is demanded of the government, the same is demanded of all of us who have a democratic participation in that government. In other words, democracy demands charity. And not just a charity in my own neighborhood or in my own living room or among my kin or my friends, but a charity that extends to even to people I don't know, people I do not identify with or understand. It means coming out of myself. In other words, we might call it a political charity. I think that is a virtue that needs to be cultivated in the heart of a democratic society if that's a sign to thrive, mm. and if it's going to thrive and fulfill its mission to do good for the human person. You turn to German-Jewish philosophers in writing this. When I was thinking about, well, what is the current situation in our country that is leading up to this, uh, or you might say, an exacerbation of, of racism or racial discord, various forms of intolerance, partisan whirlpools from which people don't seem to be able to escape? What is the atmosphere by which all of this is rising to the surface? And I have read quite a bit about Europe in the early 20th century. Mm -hmm. And so I do think that I was really looking for anybody who had experience or I thought insights with that. And it, it's not just German Jewish philosophers. I could also mention Max Picard, who wrote a book that I read some years ago. I think he wrote it in 1948 called Hitler in Ourselves. It was a brilliant work, mm -hmm. uh, a phenomenological work. He recollects on how a a German statesman was lamenting, I think this was in the 20s, about how the Nazism could be rising to power. And he told the statesman to sit down and he threw a newspaper down. And he says, just look through that newspaper. And so he'd read headline after headline after headline. And what came about was a very disjointed, very disconnected series of topics. And Max Picard said, this is how the world approaches us today. And it comes at people in a very chaotic and a disjointed fashion. And everything is competing for our attention. And he says, it's just a matter of what's the next thing that's going to grab the popular attention. And people want their attention to be grabbed because to have it grabbed by anything is better than having it grabbed by nothing, even including some pernicious conspiracy theories or ideas mm -hmm. or things that ultimately would do tremendous amount of harm to the social good. January 6th in particular was in some ways this manifestation, this synthesizing of a lot of groups that have a view of government in which there is not simply a loss of trust, but an animus. 
many people believe that they are not simply wronged, but they are defending the country, that they are, in fact, the true patriots. And there are many who point to the use of that frame of making sense of the challenge people face as a way of trying to understand why you would have so many people willing to be a part of an insurrection. What's your reaction to that? What we saw on on January 6th was really something that had been building up for some time. I think a political charity or social charity is needed now more than ever, uh, not just by diplomats and world travelers, but by everybody. Define political charity for me. It's a charity that extends to wanting to be tolerant, wanting to listen, and wanting to reflect upon political ideas that one, I do not agree with, or two, I am unfamiliar with, or just are outside my ambit of understanding. And it means also treating the person who holds or proposes those ideas with a respect. Uh, Not to see someone who disagrees with me as an enemy, uh, but to see them as another person whom I might disagree with or who I may come to understand better through a conversation. Our human condition needs redemption and we need God's grace. But all of that also means we have to willfully choose to step outside of ourselves. And that's an act of love. You know, love is to step outside of one's own will and one's own understanding to another's will and understanding, just if if for no other reason than to uh, respect that person and to treat them as, uh, as a brother and sister, as a fellow human. So this is essential. I think, to not only civilization, but to a democratic society. If that is lost, you're going to see more of what we saw on January 6th. So I hear you about the power of technology and wireless media, but those are mediums. There are voices on those mediums. How do we hold those voices accountable? What role do religious leaders play in mediating or introducing a mechanism to reclaim thoughtfulness Uh, and combat the thoughtlessness that you point out? Truth be told, I have to process that question myself. There's always an occupational hazard for any one of us. Anybody can fall into this of turning in on oneself, living in one's own little world, so to speak. There's a comfort in that, and it's not always a bad thing, but we can't stay there all the time. For a lot of people in this country, and I know you are well aware that while we're talking about religious leaders, as we go into this year, we have a record number of our fellow Americans, the majority of whom identify not with a particular religious tradition. And the reality of our multi-faith pluralism is ever-present today. That vibrancy, that engagement of people in the public square, how we negotiate what your faith tells you to do in the public square versus what my faith tells me to do in the public square. And as a religious leader, it seems to me that that question, that people are also, I think, hungry for understanding what that looks like. How do you envision speaking to that challenge? Well, I speak to that challenge by speaking to people's humanity. I was the chaplain of the Catholic campus ministry at the University of Mary Washington in Fredericksburg. And I noticed with a lot of the college students, I'm not just talking about Catholic students, I'm talking about students from all different backgrounds. Even though they may not be religious in one sense, they have a lot of transcendent questions. Sure. We are by our very human nature, truth seekers. 
and I don't mean just truth in terms of propositions or ideas, but truth in terms of who we are as persons and the truth of what it means to be human. And these are questions that I think everybody has ticking in the back of their mind and, mm-hmm. or in the, in the depths of their heart in one way or the other. It's something that everybody has in common. And so I think we need to speak to that. We need to cultivate not only that, that personal seeking, but also cultivate that we, each of us recognizes that in the other, that we recognize a, a common need, a common longing for something that transcends our immediate concerns. Mm. And I think this is something that can be done from the pulpit. And I think it is something that can be done by many other ways in, in, in the world of religion, mm-hmm. even in the world outside of religion. Reflections from you as we're about to have this historic moment. Well, I would hope the grace of his baptism and the grace of the sacrament of confirmation would, uh, would, 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 would have access to him. I don't know Mr. Biden's personal religiosity or piety very well. I don't know much about it. I will say this. One of my most admired political figures in post-World War II America is Robert F. Kennedy. And I see in him a case in point where I do think the grace of his faith did have an effect on his politics that famous talk he gave in Indianapolis on the night that Martin Luther King was assassinated. He he gave that talk extemporaneously without notes and without protection. Mm -hmm. He was putting himself out there and gave probably what I think is one of the best political speeches I've ever heard. But what it showed in there and an outreach and understanding, a willing to put himself out there for the needs of a black American community that was suffering in what I would call the footprints of history. Vice President Biden chose Kamala Harris as his running mate, an African-American and South Asian woman breaking all kinds of barriers as his running mate. He's prioritized uh, addressing systemic racism and speaking directly to anti-Black racism in this country. And he also drops biblical references in speeches. I'm curious, are you excited about the prospect of having a second Catholic president in the United States? Well, it's a hard thing for me to say, because like I said, I want to see what he does first. The race issue is also tied in very much as a life issue. The government is involved in giving life. And in other words, a life is given by justice. I think one of the areas where I have a concern with Biden is on the right to life issue. And I'll speak very frankly about that. I think that's something that I think an unborn child has as many rights as anybody else in terms of their the right to life, but also the fact that they have no voice and cannot have a voice other than ours that is intimately and intrinsically tied to every other social justice issue. That includes immigrants, that includes racial justice, and that includes economic justice. Vice President Biden-elect has talked about moving forward on reverting to a ban on federal executions. Right. And that is a life issue. It's different from the question of abortion. Abortion is with an innocent person very similar to what has traditionally been called a just war question. You can't attack non-belligerents and so on. But in terms of someone who's guilty, there's a presumption in favor of life, unless there's some impelling reason that overturns that presumption. The Holy Father and the church has spoken quite clearly, the bishops and so on, that right now there is no justification for capital punishment. The Holy Father seems to be going the direction that there never should be a, a justification for capital punishment at all. I've been following uh, Pope Francis's statements on both that and on economic issues, as well as other social issues that seem to be perhaps a bit further than where the U.S. Catholic Conference of Bishops are at the time. Here's the problem with partisan politics in general. It's like a whirlpool. It, it, it sucks you into like a little narrow funnel, and it's hard to see or get out of it. 
So in other words, it takes us away from the broader picture of what our faith is all about. Pro-life isn't just avoiding homicide, which of course is, but it's also positively affirming life by by giving it through justice and opportunity and human integral human fulfillment and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It goes into a whole array of other complex issues. But what can easily happen in today's partisan environment, one gets sucked into a very narrow and a very eclectic collection of partisan issues. I think sometimes the things that I say as a priest and is that is not because I'm looking for or expecting an immediate agreement mm-hmm. or somebody to really change right away. I often think of myself as planting a seed. You sort of have to say things sometimes and not expect immediate results. And I found that in in the business of being a spiritual father, because more often than not, grace works slowly. People process things over time. From that standpoint, I have hope, but we have to continue to nurture that process by speaking the truth, challenging them when when they're living in an alternate reality. But at the same time, it's also a very delicate process. You shove too much down someone's throat, they're going to spit it right back at you. Are there any last thoughts or reflections as we move forward from this inauguration? I think we need to look forward with a a sense of hope. We need to pray for President-elect Biden. And I think we need to pray for him because he has an enormous undertaking ahead of him to convince not only a sharply divided country but a country that has been really harmed by, you might say, leadership that has lived in an alternative reality. He needs to reestablish that credibility. That is no small task, especially for a man of his age. You know, here he is. Uh, for most people, they're, you know, this is where they're really winding down, but he's just winding up. Yeah. And so we have to wish him the best. It's not a question of agreeing with him on every single thing he says or does. He has a situation now where the future of humanity, the future of not only this country, but how this country's impact on the lives of millions of people all over the world, he has in his hands right now. And so we have to pray that through you know, divine providence, that there's a grace there and a gift there to do some good that will resonate on into the future. That's Father Frederick Edlifson, pastor of Our Lady of Lords Catholic Church in Arlington, Virginia. To find a link to his full statement, please visit the show notes for this week's episode at interfaithradio.org. A special thanks to our producers, Kevin McCarthy and Kimberly Winston. And a special thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler and MC Yogi for our theme music. Wherever you are, I hope you are well and you stay connected. And I encourage you to learn more about us, subscribe to our newsletter, and sign up for the podcast. Just search Interfaith Voices. And if you are listening via podcast, I'd like to invite you to leave a review. It helps others discover the show. We're going to close this week's program hearing a rendition of Amazing Grace performed by Lori Marie Key at this week's COVID-19 Memorial Ceremony on the National Mall on January 19th, 2021. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. I hope you are well, I hope you are safe, and that you stay connected. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I was.
was good to me. His word, my whole circus. He will my strength in perfect peace as long as life endures as long as life endures